0: Hey, it's Savannah, And welcome to Show Your Work, where we obsess about work. I'm
1: currently thinking about whether I should be adding more profanity to this podcast. We just learned that uh, there's not maybe as much as we might have thought. I can't fucking believe that. <laughs> nice.
0: Nice um, Are you still mad at me? I mean… <laughs> should we tell people why you're mad at me or why you were mad at me? Um, I Well, by the time you listened to this a week ago… Oh, you mean what? Oh, well, I'm mad at you right now immediately because you
1: offered me some chips and then we're like, no, no, I'm just kidding. You can't have those chips. Um, so there's that. Uh, but yes, I was mad at you the other night because you casually texted me and were like, yeah, uh, whatever, text. Anyway, this is just an excuse to say I'm sitting here with Zadie Smith.
0: <laughs> okay, you make it sound like it was just me and Zadie Smith and nobody else. So did you. Um, Zadie Smith gave a talk at TIFF. Um to kick off their uh, books on film series. And she's kind of an E.M. Forster expert and it was Room with a View. Mm-hmm. And so they play the movie and then she does… no, she, they do an intro where she does the intro with Eleanor Wachtel and then they play the movie and then she comes back on stage and she and Eleanor talk about the movie. Anyway, I texted you because I had to pee during the movie, of course I did. and. I can't remember. No, I texted you back because you would text me about something else.
1: Gentle listeners, I'm rolling my eyes right now. Like, this could be a one-sentence story, but we're, we have to relive <laughs> the whole story.
0: I love her so much.
1: First of all, you didn't tell me you were going beforehand so that I could flail around and come with I you was like I was asked last wheel.
0: minute. I could have bought a
1: standing room ticket if such a thing existed. It was sold out. It was also actually so… It wasn't even secret. It wasn't even a press event that the public can't go to. It's just that I was on another planet and did not know that this exists.
0: Not going to lie. I knew it existed. Totally forgot about it. Didn't know. And then, like, two days before the event, Jess Allen, our friend, was like, oh, hey, I have an extra ticket. And I was like, oh, fuck, yeah. Anyway, so… Here's the thing, Jess Allen could be forgiven
1: for not calling me, but lest you think, oh yeah, but Lainey's a really big Zadie Smith fan, um, ask me what my cat's name is. A poor, poor cat who is a whole story on her own. Ask me what my cat's name is, both names, Zadie and
0: Smith. I believe we've mentioned that. Just saying. People know No, we've definitely not mentioned that. We have fucking mentioned it. (laughs) Face, we've totally mentioned it. I've I've written about the fact that you named your cat after Zadie Smith. I barely acknowledge that I have a cat. Anyway, anyway, I just wanted to say this, and the real reason I brought up Zadie Smith is that in the um, in the talk, they come back after the film, and Zadie and Eleanor Wachtel are sitting down, and they're talking about the film, and in their introduction to the film, or at least at the beginning of talking about it, before they get into the characters and before they get into the the tension in the film…
1: One sentence.
0: I just want to say, and this is what I texted you, I wanted to say that she noticed beauty. She commented on the beauty of these actors. She was like, my God, Helena Bonham Carter was so beautiful. My God, Julian Sands. My God, they were all so beautiful. And the reason I brought it up, or I brought it up with you, is because I feel like right now we are at a time when, thank God, we are pointing out that a woman especially is more than just her looks. But sometimes we overreact and we sway so far in one direction that it becomes, but we can't mention a person's looks, but we can't focus on that, or we can't at least make that observation. And I'm just saying that... I appreciated that Zadie was able to make that observation, that the beauty of these actors was impressionable to her, mattered to her, made, you know, a difference to her. You know what's interesting about that is that uh, it's beauty to her, like,
1: on screen, right? Like, you remember there used to be language about, like, the way… Uh, what kind of things that they say? You know, somebody who was… an arresting presence on screen or who was, like, it's not always about the most beautiful, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, that line about, like, oh, I know my angles says every sort of model slash Instagram celebrity or whatever. Um, I sometimes feel like when we talk about that sort of thing, oh, my God, they were so beautiful. It's not really about sort of a, you know, Western standard of beauty necessarily as, like, those oh my God, celluloid moments, for lack of a better word, that are so just like moments in time where you see somebody 25 feet high and you're like, (gasps) like, I think that's amazing. I feel like that's okay to acknowledge. I I grant that.
0: And that's Zadie Smith. Like, I mean, if Zadie says it's okay, to me,
1: it's okay. Well, it still would have been better (laughs) if I'd been there. I would have told you if she really thought it was okay.
0: I'm telling you… That that was her observation, because then, oh, she made this, then she went on, okay, you're going to roll your eyes even more now, but then she went on to, like, they were just talking about British actors at this point, and she went on to tell this story about Hugh Grant, um, and that Hugh Grant apparently used to hang out in Oxfordshire, and she was like, oh, and back then, all he was known as, as like the most beautiful guy in Oxford. Right. Have you heard that story before? No, I don't think so, but I do sort of, I mean, I believe it.
1: I really do like those stories, though, of people who cross over unexpectedly. Like, remember the one that made me roll my eyes so hard yesterday uh, was Matthew Perry uh, on the late night shows saying that he beat up Justin Trudeau. So, uh, first of all, you know the little, like, news screen on your iPhone? (laughs) There wasn't much going on in Toronto yesterday, I guess, because it was… Up there, like, six different times as a headline. (laughs)
0: Matthew Perry kicked the prime minister's ass.
1: And he says that he was 10 at the time. And I immediately was like, "Uh," and the prime minister was a zygote, I guess? (laughs) Like, does it blow your mind that they're even
0: able to be the same age that they would be in the same educational institution. Well, and that was the point that, like, if you do the side-by-side in 2017, it's hard to believe, yeah, that they would have been in middle school or what, elementary school? Yeah.
1: Apparently, uh, they're two years apart. So
0: if Perry was 10, as he
1: claims, uh, then Justin Trudeau was eight years of age, uh, placing this in 1979, by the way, if we're doing the math. I don't know. It still seems odd to me. Matthew Perry has had many, many years of living, and uh, Justin Trudeau looks like a dewy-faced baby.
0: But we… And at the same time, Justin Trudeau… What's interesting, too, is that Justin Trudeau, as well-known as he, you think, ostensibly should be, in that middle time period of, like, his teenage years and even early 20s, we don't know what he was doing, really. Like, he was not that visible. Let alone
1: as an eight-year-old. No. And yeah. Matthew Perry only lived in Canada for, like, select
0: hot minutes. Um, but so we feel like we've known him longer just because every Thursday night for how long was Friends on? Ten years. But before that, uh, he played somebody who was
1: uh, a tennis player who was about to kill himself, but for Brandon Walsh's intervention… Uh, on 90210, remember you guys? He had really bad hair. <laughs> I think the tennis playing comes
0: by honestly, though. Anyway. Anyway, to work. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the person we're gonna kick off the show with is the last person I thought would make it on to show your work, let alone be in the number one spot. I just, First, for many reasons, one of them being you and I don't get super royal together. No, in fact, no. Like, you're not the one that I, like, royally bond with. That would be our friend Lorella. Lorella and I do lots of royal talk together. I Laura have another cares f- about… Laura… Our other friend Laura cares about uh, royals, but you and I don't really go deep diving into royal shit, and yet you were the one who texted me, I think it was like… today's Friday, so maybe Wednesday, out of the blue saying, you know, I wouldn't mind putting William, Prince William… In the podcast this week. And I was like, Jesus, wow, she's right. He should be in the podcast this week, do Don't sound so surprised that I'm right. (laughs) No, but like, again, it's surprising to me um, that Prince William is making it onto show your work. But here we are, Prince William.
1: So, okay, so let's back it up. How many… Because I do, I actually know my royals quite well and I'm aware, but you're right. I find it, uh, I don't know what, kind of pointless to talk about them sometimes because… There's no reaction. If we talk about a celebrity and something that they've done, they will come out and counteract it for better or for worse. And I feel like royal stuff goes into a vacuum. Yeah. You say, that's a weird-ass hat, Princess Beatrice. And she says, see you in seven years. Like nothing. There's no (laughs) anything. So sometimes it feels pointless to me. But uh, this week, uh, on the heels of the… Dancing in what the ski club scandal? Where
0: was he? In uh, like it's Switzerland. The sure. name of the town is Verbier. Verbier. V-E-R-B-I-E-R. Verbier. Sure. Um. Anyway, yes. So just a quick recap. Uh, Commonwealth Day is a major event on the royal calendar. The Queen. When is that? Uh, that was this year. It was Monday, March. Thirteenth. Okay. And um, it's a service. The Queen was there. Prince Charles was there. Uh, the uncles were there. What's Andrew there? Edward, Where were they? What were they at doing? At a service at uh, Westminster Abbey. Okay, fine. And Prince Harry was there. So the senior royals were all represented, with the exception of Prince William. And we subsequently found out that he was on holiday in Switzerland skiing with his boys. And photos were taken of him having beers, um, apres ski, high-fiving blonde models and then later video emerged of him dancing badly at a nightclub. Basically what people are saying is that he's work shy and here is the most egregious example of it because his work commitments when he shows up to represent the family, um, those are significantly less in frequency than most members of his family and considering he is really the second in line to the throne. Um, what is it? Do you it, call yeah, it that?
1: You no, know, yeah, it he's is. He's like the
0: first runner-up.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, he's the runner-up of the runner-up. Yeah. But here's the thing. First of all, um, we're here to talk about work. But I really feel like the you know the scandal, such as it was, overtook things. Um, so I saw that video in which he touches a model's hip or holds. Up. God, I did not care.
0: Like, would you care? Did you care? I care. But I think I care because with these people and with this family, there's a different set of standards and expectations. And we're going to get there. But I'm talking about
1: from a… the story that's being touted, from a the perspective of your husband who was off skiing with his boys. Sure. Who, if he was whatever, Jay-Z, I wouldn't give a shit. Well, what if he was your husband? If, he, if there was video that came out of him touching
0: somebody's hip, is that… am I… Uh, Am I desensitized? I don't care. Are you in isolation? Like touching someone's hip on a boy's trip when he was supposed to be or when he should have been with his family? We'll get to the work stuff. I just want to dispense, first of all, with the… How innocent in in isolation that move was. Hey, it's loud in the club. He leans over to hear somebody talking. He touches her on the hip. In isolation, sure. Yeah, no, but I'm asking you. I'm asking you.
1: Do you really? Would you really have an issue with that? Um, Perhaps I am as a as a wife, as a person. uh, Perhaps I am being too generous about tall people. But if you are tall and drunk, you lose your balance. He was hanging on to her as much for uh, balance as for uh, flirtation or attraction. Tall people, back me up feel like that's generous, but
0: I'm not going to debate you on height right now.
1: And now we get to the work. So one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about this with you is because I wanted to, you to lay out for us, there's that term work shy, but I wanted you to lay out for us what is expected of him at this point. So he's second in line to the throne, which means, I don't know what the life expectancy is of Prince Charles, but… What, it's still 25 years away, let's say?
0: Well, I mean, look, you want to get into the royal politics. There are a lot of people who believe that the queen is like hanging on. She is just like, I am going to live and live and live. My mother lived to be what, like a hundred? I'm going to live and live and live as long as I can so that my firstborn uh, is not going to be the one. And I'd rather… Like, there are many people who believe that theory. Like, you mean she, that she's going to outlive Charles? Like, let's call or it if we're calling it. live so long that his uh, reign will really be insignificant and that it will really be William who is going to assume the, you know, the throne. Is that how you say it? Assume yeah. the throne.
1: <laughs> it's a literal throne. <laughs> but how is she going to do that short of, like, assassination?
0: Um
1: I don't know, if I'm assassinated tonight, it's because I just suggested there was a plot afoot in the (laughs) royal family. Um, There was that article this week, uh, that great article about what will happen when the queen dies. In the Guardian? Yeah. Yeah. Good, a really good read. But, okay, he's at least, put it another way, he's two deaths away from the throne. Uh, What is he supposed to be doing? What's the work supposed to look like at this point?
0: Well, this is really interesting because… I'm gonna throw work in combination with sibling. So at this point, Harry is, I don't know, fifth in line now because of the two K ka- the two babies. So yes. it's Charles, William, George, Charlotte, Harry. That's right. That's five. That's right. So to me, it's I get what you're saying. Like, what's he supposed to do? He's two deaths away. And yet there's Prince Harry out. I think this week he worked six days in a row, and last year and the year before, he outworked his brother. Okay, but… So he's… and he doesn't have any hope of getting there. No,
1: but I'm asking, like, what's the requirement? At what point? I know they're supposed to do some military service after school, but beyond that, what are they supposed to spend their days on? What does work look like for Prince Andrew? How much… I don't know what was laid out for them, and so I don't know why it's so piecemeal to figure out uh, what it is they're doing. And of
0: course, the accusation has been leveled at Kate too, right? Not Mm -hmm. just Will? It has been leveled at her. I really… I'm okay with not leveling it at her because, listen, I've never been a mother. I'm not raising two kids, but you know what? She has said that her priority is her children. He has said that he wants to represent his family, but that he didn't want to start his official royal duties until he was done at his other job, which is like flying rescue helicopters.
1: Right. But obviously, I think are he would
0: be easily accounted for if he was doing that, right? Well, the news has come out once again that his flying rescue helicopter schedule is actually like barely better than part-time. It's not… <laughs> <laughs> so so that's why a lot of these members of the British press are like, what do you do when you're like 90 plus whatever grandpa and you're 90 almost one grandma are like hustling it out there? Like those old, those two oldies are like getting up and doing and pounding the pavement and shaking those hands. Okay, but let's really be real here. If you
1: are Prince Philip and Elizabeth… You have, and they're both, uh, to put it in your very eloquent terms, oldies, um, <laughs> they've experienced everything life has to offer. Like, I, it, it's entirely possible that they just go home and lie in their, like, cryogenic tubes.
0: Oh, my God, she day drinks. Like, her first drink is at noon. She has her first drink at lunch. I mean, that's entirely acceptable. A- apparently, her mother, it wasn't that the story that her mother… Like, drank a whole bottle of gin every day. Okay. I need to fact check this. Continue. I mean, she lived to a hundred and whatever, so, you know, maybe she'll be sniffing
1: at it. (laughs) But I do ask seriously and I continue to ask because I know that underneath all these things there's like issues of the monarchy being important to the British people or not and what happens if they decide that they don't care about them anymore and all of these things. So talking about all this, I really want to know what… You know, what do ascending millennials think Prince William should be doing all day? What is the worth of going to shit like Commonwealth Day that, you know, I don't know if, if half the, the UK knows it exists to be annoyed that he was there or not. Like, part of the conversation here is, okay, the royals exist, but does anybody care? And I say this with all earnestness. I, I almost wonder if they're doing their best work when they are tabloid fodder, Uh, and I'm not trying, uh, you know, they're essentially movie stars. I'm not sure that the goodwill that they impart to the British people by showing up and waving is going to hang on through the next generation. So I have some, if not sympathy, I have some questions about whoever's giving him his marching orders.
0: I would be more inclined to be on side with that argument. Like, what is expected of them? Like, the fact that they exist, essentially, and step out once in a while and show up in the tabloids really is enough to generate the interest and the intrigue and to keep the family, whatever. But I think the asterisk here is that their very livelihood is literally from the taxpayers. Oh, 100%. Right? I get it.
1: But I don't think… It used to be that the showing up and the waving was service, right? And like that that would perk up the, you know, the downtrodden, war-torn, and I don't know if just being smiling icons is what the British populace wants out of their royals that are tax-supported going forward. Uh, And I don't know who you poll to ask, British populace, uh, but I would love to know what they're supposed to be doing in order to revitalize the monarchy and keep going Beyond, let's be honest, doing things like dating high-profile people and, you know, getting everybody excited over what weddings might ensue. Oh my God, Harry's doing a great job. This is my point. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, With respect to Prince William, you referenced that article this week that was in The Guardian about London Bridge, which is the code name that they use. Wasn't that the coolest part? Yes. The code name that they use, of course you would think that was the coolest part, what they named the plan, the funeral plans for the Queen, and it's been set in place, or they've been adding to it, but they've been having regular meetings about this for years and years and years. But, like, somebody's going to pick
1: up the phone, call the Prime Minister at 3 a.m. and go,
0: London Bridge, click. It has fallen. It's amazing. Yes. London Bridge has fallen. And it's super James Bond, for sure. But um, within that article, many times, I mean, I think the subtext of that article is that the role of the monarchy is not what it was when the queen, you know, had her coronation. And Generations ago. That's right. I think it's the article said that she's outlasted 12 U.S. presidents or yes. something like that. So, in fact, the world and the monarchy are quite unstable right now. Huh. There's a, <laughs> that understatement. There's so much unpredictability. And so what this article argues is that the funeral and the ceremony and the planning… And the spectacle that the world will see when, God forbid, Queen Elizabeth II passes is a way to reassert the value and the importance of the British monarchy to the British identity. So when I talked about Prince William on the blog, my point was he was supposed to be the reliable one, not the one who went to Vegas and cupped his balls and play pool and got his picture taken, he was was the one who married the nice girl who did such a great job becoming the princess. He was the one who quickly had two kids. Um, He was the one who was supposed to have it together. And suddenly, as she approaches her 91st birthday, the one she thought was, oh, he's the one who's going to do the good job. Not my son who had the Camilla and the divorce and the tampon quote and whatever. Um, He was the one I can count on to fulfill my legacy and to carry on. And suddenly, in just, you know, a few weeks' time or over time, we are hearing more and more about the one who was supposed to be reliable and dependable might not be that way. Yeah, because no shit. Because you have this obligation hanging
1: over them for their entire lives with no fulfillment. No shit they're going to get a little squirrely. As you were talking, I was trying to Google when uh, Tampon Gate happened uh, and what the comparison of ages were. I know that Prince Charles got married when he was, I think, 33 and Diana was 19 because that's super going (laughs) to work. And William's what now, 36? Uh, Not even. Like I would… 34 maybe? Yeah, I'm saying, do not dangle the sword of Damocles over somebody's head for their entire life. And then wonder why in the fourth decade they start to cut a wee bit loose.
0: Well, I get that, 100%. His problem, or the problem with that argument, is that his grandmother has never wavered from her duty. Ever. Okay, remember, like, when she was a kid, she listened to bombs going off. And, like, she lived in a city that was literally getting shelled every single night. Like, and that, and that, I'm not arguing. I'm I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying that the people who would criticize him, that's what they would come back to you with. They would say, how hard is it for him? But my thing is, I'm saying,
1: And she's a woman. All those people who are about to say that, gonna die. Prince William's contemporaries and the people who will be around when he assumes that throne some goddamn day, don't care. They don't You don't care. care. I don't care, but I cannot imagine a uh, my contemporary of a certain age uh, sitting in Cricklewood, London, home of Zadie Smith, and going, like, I'm scandalized that he went to a nightclub. I'm sorry,
0: you don't think a 35-year-old Briton voted Brexit? Come on now. The Brexit voters were not over 50 or 60, Joanna. Okay, you still Brexit... have, like… A gener- our generation, or even the millennial… look at the member the girl who was interviewed, and the next morning was like, "What did what?"
1: I- but Brexit is not Royals. We can't be conflating these things.
0: I'm talking about. Oh royal. yes, you can, because Brexit was very much a lot of people who were like, "We want Britain to stay what like with what Britain is." But let's and if, be- That's what the garden art- the garden art- the- yeah, but that's but what, what they- the Guardian article argued? Okay, what they meant was we want Britain to stay white. Uh-huh. Uh, but I
1: don't believe, and I do think we're kind of getting into murky territory, but I don't think it, I still don't think that that equates to, ergo, our weird figureheads that do nothing can never have fun. And I don't think anybody cares that the queen never did anything, because let's be honest, everybody thinks the queen, look, she is unchanging. Her hairstyle has been the same on our money since (laughs) I was born. Yes.
0: like… We don't have the attention span for that shit And that's the comfort, though. I think that because she was so unwavering and unchanging with the same hairstyle, that that represented a stability. And then you have, who's coming up next? Are they going to live up to the same sense of stability? I get it. I'm just saying, I believe people don't want stability
1: anymore. We're from an Instagram generation. I hold my phone while I'm watching TV. I can't do one thing at once. I think people want a little more interest, a little more excitement, especially if these people are going to siphon from their taxes for the foreseeable future. So There, where? fixed it.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, Duanna is not that mad at Prince William. If you are mad at Prince William or if you have an alternate point of view, let us know. Yeah.
1: If you are delighted with the ongoing unchangingness of the monarchy,
0: let me have it. All right. Okay. We're going to go from… Uh, not real life, because I'm pretty sure we can agree that the royal life is not real life, to semi-real life. I'm just saying, man. <laughs> let them be real. Yes. Go on. Semi-real life, or at least a real life issue that we can discuss, which huh. is Emily Blunt and John Krasinski. It was uh, announced this week that he will be writing and directing a movie, and she will be starring in it. Is he starring in it too? Yes. They're yeah. starring in it together. It's called The Quiet Place. huh mm-hmm. Um, it, it will be the first time that they've worked together. Mm -hmm. Um, and I pitched this to you for the podcast Mm -hmm. and you had a big reaction. I sure did. It was all caps over text, no, no. Um, yeah, so this is, uh, I mean, they're not the first spouses in Hollywood to work together. No, but
1: it don't always go so well. I don't love it. I don't. I could be very wrong, and there are all kinds of reasons, which I will get into if we have the time and the, like, therapy couch space, but I don't know. I don't know if it's a good idea to go to work every day and work with your spouse all day, and I believe that those can be good working relationships, and then go home and complain about your day, but he was there all day, but uh, it's a lot. Um, And, you know, if it was a, if it was a, a, I don't know, a big ensemble and they both happened to be in it, I think that might be a different story than what seems necessarily like they are co-stars, love interests, and whatever else.
0: You did not feel this way. No, it's not that I didn't feel this way. I didn't have, it wasn't going to be, um, for me, it was going to be a talk about, hey, you know, and we talk about this on the social all the time, like, can husband and wife work together? Would you work with your spouse? Um, When you had that reaction, though, I thought to myself, wait a minute, she does have a point because there is evidence to support your case. We've seen it with, um, most recently, the biggest example is Angelina Jolie directed Brad Pitt in By the Sea and, well, we know what happened there. Sam Mendes directed Kate Winslet when they were still married in Revolutionary Road with Leonardo DiCaprio. Did you see that? Mm -hmm. Did you like it? I didn't hate it. I did like it. Like, I… I I didn't hate it either. Yeah. It felt like a real marriage, like a real marriage
1: that was hard. Okay, but this is the problem. I feel like you're gearing up for realists and I don't want to interrupt, but this is what the issue is, I think, or this is why it's extra weird. 95% of the time, if you're playing a couple in a movie, unless it's like some tween movie called like Middle School, it's because the marriage is going to go through some kind of rift or change or whatever. And the same realness that these two actors or an actor and director bring to it that makes it so amazing for us to watch means they're bringing their shit from home. I feel... It's a, it's a heavy thing. Actors are already asking their spouses to go along with a lot. Oh, I got to kiss people. It's my job. <laughs> I remember uh, Sarah Jessica Parker talking about how delicious it was that she just had to be a smoker for Sex and the City. Oops, nothing I can do. There's already a lot that your spouse sort of goes along with if you're this person And to kind of watch as everybody else in the room watches you have an intense moment or a marital discussion or something, I'm sure they talk with their therapists of how to separate it, but I think it's weird. Or I think it can bring up more things more often. And I said to you, I worry constantly about my loves, uh, Matthew Reese and Carrie Russell, who did it kind of the opposite way, played spouses on TV and then discovered, holy shit, we're super in love and now they're together and I want the Americans to go on forever, but I also want it to end so they can save their relationship. But there's an elephant in the
0: room here, uh, which is you work with your spouse, so? And there were definitely boundaries, right? Like for, I think, seven years, Yasik and I I wasn't living in Toronto where I left the house every morning at 6 o'clock and was gone for sometimes up to 12 hours. Um, So there was that separation. When we started the blog in Vancouver, for all intents and purposes, we worked out of the same 1,100 square foot apartment for days and days and days and days. But the rule was I wrote in one office and he wouldn't talk to me. Like, he was not allowed to, like, come in and be like, ah, I just read this. There was no talking. Mm -hmm. It was not unusual for me to wake up and start writing at whatever time and for he and I not to have our first exchange until maybe five or six hours later. Right. And that is something
1: that I buy, uh, not only because of the nature of the business, but because I know you. Um, But I don't know that you can do that on a movie set. Of course you can't. And day in and week out and month in and month out and there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of money. So am I overlooking some positive here? I mean, part of it is intuition, right? If you intuitively have chemistry with somebody, you have chemistry. God forbid you don't have it on on screen. Have we ever seen that? Has there ever been… A couple
0: who kind of got on screen and felt flat? Like a real life couple. Yeah. And then we watch them on screen and we're like, I don't know what this is. Like, mm-hmm. I don't see it. Um, I mean, nothing, no example comes to mind right now. I, but I feel like at the same time…
1: Actually, I got one. When who? You're ready.
0: Who? Reese and Ryan. Um, but they fell in love on that movie. You're talking about Cruel Intentions.
1: Right. They fell in love on that movie. So you're right. It was not quite the same thing because they weren't a couple
0: playing a couple. And you could tell that they were falling in love. Yes, you could definitely tell. Oh my… god, That's part of the why so many people like that movie. That was intense. Like, I knew that they were boning. But you could also tell that they were not the same. That they were not simpatico. Even then, that they were not lined up, maybe. He has… A great quote. I can't quote it verbatim, but do you know that scene where he breaks up with her? Yeah. He said that that was so hard for him. And remember, they were like 21 at the I time, know, right? It so was at, at 21, you feel things in a way with an intensity that, like, you look back at 41 and you're like, "Oh my god, I'm so dramatic." They were barely legally <laughs> drinking. That's right. So in that scene, he has said that having to yell at her and be mean to her was so traumatic, eye roll, like, you know, oh, teenager, or oh, young adult, you're so dramatic. But he said that it was so traumatic for him that he would leave the set and, like, have to throw up. Like, that was so emotionally grueling for him.
1: (laughs) I was here for most of that (laughs) quote because I really like that movie. I I was really hanging on to the eye roll, but it
0: just just triggered. I know. Anyway… So those two, yeah. I mean, they were. From, I don't know, like an example of um, people who. Oh, here's one. Here, how about this one? And mm-hmm. uh, this is going way back, Good. way back. One of my favorite movies to watch on TV when it comes on on, like, you know, TBS on Saturday afternoon. A lot of preamble,
1: you guys. Overboard.
0: Uh-huh. Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn. Okay. First of all, I love that movie. Sure. Um and they were together at the time that they met. Already made that together? Mood. I'm pretty sure. Okay. Yeah. Um and well Kurt Russell and Goldie Hahn are sure. I mean Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn. that
1: might be the exception that proves the rule or if you're me after we talked about cruel intentions of course I immediately thought about say it with me Sarah Michelle Gellar and Freddie Prinze Jr. Right. Still
0: together. Were they together um, for I Know What You Did? I think that's where they met and fell in love, but they did
1: later do a couple of Scooby-Doo movies and right. uh, to tell the tale. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm partly joking, but we don't have a lot of examples of showmances, as they're called, that
0: have stood the test of time. We are not like old classic Hollywood movie experts. Like… I mean, is there an example of like, like what, like uh, like Debbie Reynolds and Eddie Fisher, Spencer Tracy and um, Catherine Hepburn? But that was they couldn't. uh,
1: Oh, am I thinking of the right one? They could uh, uh, yell at me, guys. But no, that was they couldn't be together because uh, he was Catholic, right? So that added to their intrigue. That was the deal back then. uh, How
0: about um, how about Lauren Bacall and Bogart? Maybe
1: that's who I'm talking about.
0: No, no, you're right in that Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy, he was married. That's right. So their relationship existed scandalously, if you will. Um, So they were never fully, legitimately together. Um, But yeah, what about Bogie and Bacall? I mean, sure, I'm out of my my depth here, but… But that's not current. I mean, the current workspace is different. And also… I mean, if we're going back to our original example of John Krasinski and Emily Blunt, he's not just an actor in the film, he's directing and writing it. So he is, I mean, for all intents and purposes, he's her boss, not just her colleague. Yeah, he's going to be in it
1: all the time. And, uh, you know, I work in, we both do, uh, in a very untraditional environment. I, I love to read about work and I love this blog, Ask a Manager. And I was laughing because they always talk about how spouses shouldn't work together or, you know, ideally not even for the same company, let alone the same department. I was going, uh, that's a rule that doesn't apply in entertainment ever. First of all, because you're always there. Where else are you going to meet somebody? Yeah. And second of all, because there's nobody who would go, well, I got two great producers, but they're married. I better break them up. Or two great actors or anything. Um, so it does happen over and over again, but I don't know, it seems like there are flaws in the process. You know what I was thinking, though? You know, this does not seem to apply in music. In music, if you do a collaboration, that's a week, maybe. Yeah. Um, you know, even if you went on tour together, uh... It's it's your performance and his performance yep. and there's no pretending involved yep. uh, or her performance. I don't mean to be heteronormative there. Uh, and you then go on with your life. Uh, I think musicians can, can be co-married quite well and maybe actors can be co-married quite well. Uh, I just thought of another one. Guys, all these couples that are happily married are from the WB. Um, <laughs> you know, there's, there's uh, Allison and Hannigan and Alexis Denisoff, just to really A-list it for you. Um, but I don't know whether you can be two A-list actors and taking on the writing and directing and headlining the movie with all that that entails. I mean, you get paid a shitload of money, but it's also very stressful. I don't know if it's good for you.
0: Does it help, given that, like, you are worried? Yeah. Because you like them. I do. Does it help that it's not going to be forever? That it is a limited amount of time? Sure. It's not
1: the Americans. It's not day in and day out for years. It's one movie. And they can set up their schedules such that they know what they're going off to do much later. Yes. uh, With the… Small exception that as the writer and director, you're not done when the movie is done. Then, of course, he you're will to sit post, yeah. in post for months and watch every little detail and wonder if her eyes flickered at somebody else in one moment and wonder why they don't have enough chemistry to make that one mo- moment work in another scene and maybe go back for reshoots and she's going, it's fine, I gave everything I could. And then, you know, it's very hard, um, you know, when you when your significant other criticizes something about you, it can feel very… it can cut deep or it can just be annoying as hell. Uh, And then think about the fact that they're not always commenting on your work, on your day-to-day work. If they were, that's a lot. That's all I'm saying. It's a lot.
0: My question to you is, if it were to be okay…
1: And, and look, I'm sure it will be. Let, Hopefully, let's not, yeah. Let yeah. me not be the arbiter no. of No,
0: our discussion here, our debate here is is on the work and whether or not you can cross the work and the personal at the same time right. and make it. What are the qualities that are required in order to set you up for success? Um, I would definitely say rules, like you boundaries, discussed yeah. boundaries and,
1: you know, established things that uh that you do or in this case don't do you know i don't uh i i'm i'm in a very happy relationship uh but we're not so regimented about like we have friday date nights uh yeah. some people are but i would say that if you were working together all day every day i would almost eliminate those out of course i would make a point that then those dates become for your friends for your family for anybody else to kind of get away from each other. Because as much as we all say, like, oh, you know, evenings are for home time or not talking about work or whatever, when your work is your whole life, it's real easy to talk about work. And in fact, that's why we're here, because we want to talk about work all the time, right? Yeah. So I think that could be easier to avoid if you spent conscious time away from each other.
0: You know what my question was initially, too, when I read this in terms of, and this goes back to what are the qualities that you have to do or you have to have to make this work, is how honest can you be? Like, if you're Emily Blunt and your husband and you are Emily Blunt, like, I would argue that Emily Blunt's profile and work steadiness is a little bit more intense than John Krasinski's.
1: I would agree with that. Well… I would agree on a couple of levels. Number one, um, yes, she's definitely higher profile. Um, I don't know if I would say about work steadiness because he's always got some…
0: Yeah, sure. Let me clarify. John Krasinski is within sort of the age range and range of the Jake Gyllenhaals, the Ryan Goslings, the Ryan Reynolds, so on and so forth, right? Mid-30s, approaching forty.
1: Yeah, no, I know what you're getting at. He's not as big a star. No. However, what I would clarify is he has that, is it called Q factor?
0: Q, yeah. He's likable. Q score. He's hugely, hugely likable, right? Sure, but I don't know that people are rushing to the box office to buy a ticket to go see a John Krasinski movie. I would argue that they probably are. Um,
1: He doesn't make a lot of them because he's sort of… He's one of these guys who made enough money, one thinks, from the office and all the syndication, that he doesn't take a lot of movies. Um, you know, Leatherheads and License to Wed, and uh,
0: he took that really shitty art. Like, I mean, that. Okay, well, I don't know. Maybe I'll get in trouble now because it was about like, like SEAL teams or. Military. It was a military movie. Do you remember it? Let me just look it up right now. All right. You Carry look on. it up.
1: I'm going to talk about all the, like, pleasure projects that he's been working on. He adapted the David Foster Wallace book, mm-hmm. Brief Interviews with Hideous Men. Mm-hmm. That's not a crowd pleaser. That's a tiny little indie movie. Sure. Uh, remember we read that he was writing about uh, a movie about the Chateau Marmont? Yes. That's a deep, research-heavy kind of thing. This is a guy who is a writer and a producer and a director first, who happens to star in movies. I think he's been quite open about uh, admiring one George Clooney in that way, that, you know, Clooney does not shift himself to to star in things so much as produce. And I'm not suggesting that John Krasinski is George Clooney. I'm just saying I think that's the model he wants to follow.
0: I would agree with that, and yet the movie I was thinking Mm of… First of all, is a Michael Bay movie. (laughs) It was the 13 Hours, the Benghazi movie, the Soldiers of Benghazi movie, which was, I mean, if I get in trouble, so be it. Shitty movie. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, if you've got to make a quick paycheck, a Michael Bay movie is the way to do it. Oh, my God. Um, And didn't do well. Mm -hmm. But, okay, back to the original point. There's Emily Blunt and there's John Krasinski. We both agree that she's more high profile than he is. Sure. So, John Krasinski comes to you. But neither is she, like… A list. let's Okay, be real. I no, she's not like Scarlett Johansson.
1: <laughs> oh, here we are. <laughs>
0: um, but I mean, she's doing Mary Poppins. Look, she's she, she's on the list. She
1: works all the time. Yeah, I always go by. Does my dad know who she is? My dad's seventy. He likes to watch like a late night program.
0: I. So, does your dad know ScarJo more than Emily Blunt? Hundred percent. There you go. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> to go back to last week. There no. you go. I'm just saying. Um, but I would say, though, that if you're Emily Blunt, you've got offers. Lots and lots of offers. You're on a list. In fact, you might be tops on many lists. Absolutely. Then and your husband… Sorry, Anne. She's making her way up those lists. I don't mean yes. to
1: imply that she's, uh, you know, suffering for work, but she's just, she's just a level down from… Scar Joe versus Jennifer Lawrence versus
0: Natalie Portman. Sure. Great. So you're Emily Blunt, and John Krasinski, your husband, comes to you and is like, I want to do this movie. I've written the screenplay. I'm going to direct it, and I'm going to star in it. I really want you to be in it. And you… (laughs) <laughs> like do you have a choice? Oh, this is where you were saying. Yeah. How honest do you be? That's the work, right? Like it's work and life. Like I to me this is this is the guts of this story. Like I'm going to assume that it's good cuz I want to believe that he does good work, but at the same time her agreeing to it is not the reason I think it's good. You're saying that, well, there's two ways around that. There's, you see what I mean. Well,
1: yeah, you're, but I'm not sure which end you're getting at. There's the, there's the place where you're implying that she's doing it because you got to keep the marital peace and lending your star power to your husband's Can movie you say is no? a thing to do.
0: Can you say no? But… Can you say, hey, your work is not good enough for me to work on?
1: Okay, no, you can't say that. (laughs) No, you better right quick line up something else for, you know, uh, several weeks. But she's also big enough now that she could move a movie. Um, You know, not always, but if if they wanted her for Mary Poppins, for example. And you know, you know if you're an actor, whether you just beat somebody else out for the role or whether it's yours to kind of do what you want with. And I don't know the answer in that case. Uh, But it's not like, At a certain point, if they want you, it's not like she can say, oh, gosh, I have all these other movies lined up because you can move one or the other. You're in charge of your own schedule at that point a little bit. It's icky. Or, however, I wanted to talk about another possibility, which is, and not that I don't think this movie is good. I don't know how we're down this path, but there's also the possibility of loving somebody so much
0: that you think everything they do is brilliant. I agree with you. I think there's more examples of that now. There's more examples of that, like Guy Ritchie and Madonna. It depends where you fall on that. Like they made that movie that was the shipwreck swept away. Oh man, right? Yeah. So I don't know who's like the movie was was that exactly. So Mm -hmm. that that's an example. Yeah, where you're blinded by it. Absolutely. And it happens, to go back to your point about music, it happens in music too. I mean, when Katy Perry and John Mayer were together and they did a song together, that song was terrible. Yeah, but a song is so much more like… Eh, yes. So you can much throw more it away disposable. quicker.
1: Yes. When it works, hello, Bonnie and Clyde 03 or yeah. Crazy in Love, it's there. It's a testament to your chemistry. But when it doesn't, it's
0: gone. And it just came to me… Um, Sarah's point about Melissa McCarthy working with her husband Ben Falcone, Falcone, yeah, and her point is that, like Ben Falcone's work that she's done a few times is not that good. no, it's not In fact, I had an Uber driver
1: in l a who was not impressed with Melissa McCarthy's choices to uh, add her husband into every project,
0: but there you go. I mean, isn't to me that would be the closest equivalent to. John. To what now? Whoa, that's a real… That, that's no, no, a, the possibility is what I'm saying, I'm just Joanna. saying we're spending the a lot of… possibility.
1: We're spending a lot of time on a possibility that is unproven. I think this is going to be great. Right,
0: that's why you were worried about it at the beginning, but okay. Not
1: because it wasn't going to be a good project, but uh, like I think there are two different discussions here. I'm worried about a, a marriage. I'm not worried about uh, a script. And I suspect that you are, and that is your prerogative.
0: All right. Uh, Next, we are moving on to Stephen Colbert. Mm -hmm. So I sent you a story that came out in Vulture called "How Stephen Colbert Got His Groove Back." Right. What jumped out at me in this article, because Stephen Colbert, since uh, the uh, you know the Trump administration, since Donald Trump has become president, um, has been rising steadily in the ratings to the point where I think in some demos he's doing better than The Tonight Show and Jimmy Fallon. And the reason why this is remarkable is because he was shit. Like, it was… the ratings were not good, the buzz was not good, the show was awkward. Yeah, it was shit.
1: It was unfocused and weird and… Yeah. uh, It wasn't nailing things.
0: It felt unsatisfying. That's right. So this article in Vulture tracks how and why he got his groove back, how and why this surge happened, and in particular, this sentence in bold was the reason why I sent this to you and you said that it was pornographic and ha- almost had an orgasm. That's it's, true. Right. The sentence is, quote, Colbert realized he needed to stop being a micromanager. I, I, like You're actually a little bit speechless. I am a little speechless, just like you were orgasmic. Yes. Hi, Mom. Let's break this down. Why? Why? Why are you so speechless? Why is it such an exciting thing to read? It's a little bit aspirational. I I'm I'm a micromanager in the sense where I fixate I want to do everything by myself. I don't think you are at all, but I support that worldview. Go on. It took me a long time. Like, and maybe you're seeing that now because I have let go of certain things, but there were many, many years. Where Yasek was like, hey, let's find a way to get this off your plate. Right. And it was hard. Mm-hmm. There were times when I didn't want… I needed to get back to every single query. I needed to look at every single thing. Can we talk about that?
1: That when I met you, you were like working your way through all the email that had ever been sent to you and and emailing people back one
0: by one? It's kind of amazing. And… Listen, it's not something that I, I, I don't want to say that I enjoy not writing back to every single email because I do miss that. But there comes a, a point where there's only so much you can do and you have to delegate or select and prioritize. And it makes your work better. I think that's
1: why, to me, it was so exciting in all the ways, right? Because so much of the time… What keeps people from figuring out that they should relinquish some control is this idea that they would be better at it than anybody else. Mm -hmm. Um, An expression I'm guilty of using myself is it's quicker to do it than it would be to explain it to somebody, which is absolutely true, but still bullshit. It will still make it better because the mental energy that you're using on whatever mundane task it is or whatever mundane task uh, Colbert was, was focusing on can be used to be Colbert. Uh, and I think that's a really exciting thing to hear because when you're as wealthy and successful as he is, a lot of people just don't see that. A lot of people don't process those kinds of pieces of work feedback. You're not doing as well as you could. You could be doing
0: better. That's, that's kind of rare. Mm-hmm. It's rare too to go back to something you just said 30 seconds ago, to say, I think that I'm the best person to do this thing. And when he is admitting that he doesn't have to micromanage, it's also acknowledging that the people whose job it is to do certain things are actually the best people to do those jobs. That's why they're there. Uh, You know, we often talk about people who are generous, people who get
1: a win, uh, who win an award or who have some success and who pass it around or don't. And I think this is also to do with that. If you're generous about letting people do their jobs, then it really does feel like all your wins and there's, it's enough to go around. You know, I have a friend who is a very, very successful executive. And uh, I watched her get uh, a compliment from a higher-up about a project that had been delivered via her team. And she sent back an email to a whole bunch of executives saying, oh, thank you, Uh, the work was done by this low-level person. And of course, the low-level person was walking on air for a week and my friend, the executive, looks great because she looks like she chose somebody great to do it it takes nothing away from her to give that compliment to somebody. And the execs go, well, oh, well, look at her. She's got things in hand. A lot of people don't do that. A lot of people keep the, the credit for themselves, keep the success for themselves. And that's the other thing, right? The, the sort of flip side of, oh, I can do it all myself is, and if it succeeds, it's
0: all me. I did yeah. it all myself. What? I like most about the story you just told about the executive who you know is that the actual exact quote of giving credit is, it doesn't cost me anything. And it's a quote that I have gone back to a lot in my mind about what things cost. And what she was saying is, hey, by me letting others know who I feel is responsible for this win… It doesn't take anything away from me, but I think that a lot of people have that fear that if you share credit or give credit, somehow it diminishes you. And this can happen a
1: lot earlier in your work life, right? When you finally get a little bit of responsibility or a kind of high-profile project, you really want to show how well you did. I remember something that I did once, and I there were several of us who got sort of a high-profile assignment. And I kind of looked askance at people who were asking for help at every turn. I'm like, I don't need help. Guess whose projects were better? The people who asked for the help. I didn't ask for help because I was so sure, not even so sure, but so determined to prove
0: I could do it myself. It doesn't look as good. No. I do want to also say that the reason why this bolded line about micromanaging and letting go resonated with me in particular this week is because I've been reading a book after meeting an author on the social, he and his wife came on the social. His name is Stephen Marsh. He uh, wrote a book with his wife, Sarah Fulford, called The Unmade Bed. So just a quick recap, um, Stephen Marsh and Sarah Fulford lived in New York. He was um, a professor on track to be tenured. And he ended up uh, giving up all of that to move back to Toronto with her because she was offered a job as the editor-in-chief of Toronto Life magazine. So basically, he, a man, gave up his career so that his wife could pursue hers. And there were many reasons for it, but when he got back to Toronto and became the primary household manager looking after their children, looking after the household chores, he talks about how he was judged by some people, including his dad, for example. Mm -hmm. Why did you go get all that education if you're just not going to use it and just stay home with the kids? And, you know, his book, The Unmade Bed, really is about the changing dynamics between men and women in their roles at home and professionally. And there is one thing that he says that really, really hit home for me and for a lot of women that I talked to afterwards. And he talked about how women are pursuing their careers these days and um, they're getting home and they're like, even if they have a supportive male partner who is the CEO of the household and is stacking the dishes or doing the laundry, they'll get home and they'll be like, I have to redo the dishwasher. Because I don't want the dishes to be stacked this way. Or, you know, I want it cleaned this way. And his quote is, housework is the macho bullshit of women. Whoa, that's a good quote. And what he was saying is, at a certain point, ladies, I am here and there are many dudes. I'm married to one of them who are here for you, who will be the CEO of the home, but you can't go to be the CEO of your professional lives and then come home and be like, but I want the laundry folded this way and we need to clean it this way. At a certain point, you have to let go of that. Right. Let somebody do it. Yes. And let them own it. But many women, and we talk about this, this is called emotional labor, the thank you cards you know making sure that the gifts are all bought for the cousins and the whatever and the right gifts so that you're not judged because the judgment always comes back to the woman at a certain point you have to let go of it it's it's really interesting because it's
1: it's his not... argument his argument i have been wanting to read that book actually i'm going to i'm going to take it out of here tonight um but it's really interesting because What you're pointing out in relation to this quote is uh, that, you know, it takes nothing. There's no macho bullshit about Colbert saying, uh, I can't do it all. I'm not for everybody, which is really nice. Yes. Um, And it makes me think of, uh, speaking of macho bullshit, it makes me think of the environments of comedy and whether they are, in fact, the sort of male-based macho comedy rooms or not, uh, as we're often told. I saw this quote from Noelle Wells recently, and it, uh, it really surprised me, and I uh, sent it to you, and I don't know if it, uh, if it gave you the same sense of panic. So, Noelle Wells was on SNL for, uh, I believe, one season. Uh, she was, you know, she did okay in terms of airtime. And then she left SNL after one season when her contract was not renewed, and then, of course, she went on to play the love interest in Master of None, Uh, and now she has a new movie that she just had at, I believe it's Sundance, uh, Mr. Roosevelt. But the quote that was interesting here was that she talked about how uh, she didn't miss SNL because... Uh, It was a comedy establishment, so everyone would naturally want its stamp of approval. Uh, But she says she and other people who didn't spend much time on the show are much stronger doing their own thing without having to try and impress comedy dinosaurs. Uh, And she also said, oh, SNL is, uh, it's become what it was always trying to make fun of. So, you know, it was one of those things. What do you make of this quote? because, or collection of quotes, I should say, because that is fairly assembled and each article is, is it's a bit assembled in terms of putting these quotes together. Uh, you know, she says, for whatever reason, we got rejected, meaning she and I believe Brooks Whelan and John Milheiser were the other freshmen who were cut that year. But that's okay, it's exactly more rock and roll. Um, I had a very distinct reaction, but what was your reaction to this quote?
0: And, uh, you know, and you included um, Brooks and somebody else. And, John Milheiser. Yeah. And then there's also Jenny Slate. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michaela Watkins, I think, is in there. Well, you're
1: getting to the, the point of the matter here. Yeah. John Milheiser and Brooks Whelan were the two who, first-timers who were cut the same year as Noel Wells after right. only one year. But you're getting to a, a much finer point here. Go on. No,
0: I don't know if I'm getting to the thing that you're telling me to get to. I'm not. Go get to your point. Listen, I, at first, my reaction was, oh, I I appreciate this candor. Right. Like, I love the honesty. Mm -hmm. And then it kicked in and I started thinking, and I was like, is this smart? Mm -hmm. Is this savvy? Mm -hmm. And is it necessary? You went on, and you were on Aziz Ansari's show, as you mentioned. She's doing some films. What we talked about: what things cost you when they don't cost you anything. What is the benefit of calling Saturday Night Live a bunch of dinosaurs and a machine that you no longer we want to be a part of? And it's you know besides the point. Is there a benefit? I don't know. I'm asking you. So I'm going to tell you what I think. Uh,
1: What it sounds like, even though, as I said, she mentions those two dudes that she was cut with, uh, you know, or at the same time as. You bring up uh, Jenny Slate and Michaela Watkins. Watkins And and I think
0: um, it says Casey Wilson is also in here. Oh, yeah. Casey
1: Wilson. Um, These are all women who spent a short time on SNL. And, you know, SNL had, I'm going to put that D on the end there, SNL had this sort of big female renaissance um, in the last couple of years, uh, Adie Bryant, and Kate McKinnon, and Cecily Strong, and Sashir Zameda, and Leslie Jones, and uh, uh, Vanessa Bayer, and for a while it felt like, oh my God, this is this great powerhouse of a time for women on this show. And I would say that that has, I don't want to say it's... A, lessened, but uh, I think the show's really strong right now, and there's a whole cottage industry of people who just, like, watch SNL like it's baseball, like, just handicap it and go up and down. I will talk SNL with you anytime. I will talk about Colin Jost. But there has been an argument leveled, and not just here, that sometimes the reason that women seem to be sidelined in environments like SNL... Or, you know, a Second City or other sort of comedy venues, either stand-up comedy or, you know, sitcoms or whatnot, is not because they're not funny or not because they're not doing it right or, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about all these women who were not in the room at Late Night with David Letterman, but because the people who are judging what is funny are men often white men, who are seeing things through their filter and they don't see the value in what they don't see. You know, the only person who has sort of talked about this in a way that implies real breakthrough success is Tina Fey, who talked all the time about how she more or less would just yell at the men until they got the point of what she was saying and that it was super funny. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons why Tina Fey is Tina Fey, but she sounds so completely unintimidated and I think sort of got a lot of comedic things through that might otherwise not have mom jeans as one of them. And they talked about Kotex Classic. I remember her referencing in her book. All this to say, uh, I think she did it because she just sort of looked at people like they were idiots. But there's an accusation being leveled here in not the most uh, articulate terms. Right. Not unlike my ramble right here. Uh that the reason it didn't work out for Noelle Wells or some others at SNL is because they're not open to what women or certain types of women or some women
0: find funny. Discuss. If that is the argument that she was trying to make, mm-hmm. I think it was a little bit too uh, obscure. Okay. I mean, what if it was
1: the other argument? The other way to read this is they're old and I'm young and I'm funnier. Uh, And I'm paraphrasing a lot. There's cockiness there. But is is it too obscure if it's that argument? Because you really seem to bristle about comedy dinosaurs.
0: I bristle about comedy dinosaurs and I bristle about the machine. I bristle about the quote that is… Why are we all trying to be accepted by all these comedy dinosaurs? SNL has become what it was always trying to make fun of. It's become this big machine. I don't want to be plugged into a big machine. So there is definitely what you're arguing, as in these are white dudes who determine what white guys find funny, and then there's another argument about it's big box comedy. It's the Walmart of comedy. But to me… If you want to go in and you want to be like, we were young women, we had a point of view that was funny, but you white dudes just didn't think that there was an audience for it, and your male-centric point of view, especially comedic point of view, blinded you from seeing that there could be a space for that, I'm down. But this, this to me, you either get specific Or you don't get anything. You don't get anywhere at all. So just to be specific about the specific, you mean get specific about your quote? Yeah. Because
1: as you're talking, I'm hearing another argument that says, you know, because she talks here about uh, being watered down. There are arguments from both sides of things that sometimes what is funny is the super specific. And I would argue that some of the funniest sketches on SNL are the most specific, Uh, Le Jeune dans Paris is inexplicable and hilarious because it's inexplicable. It's adorable. Um, I love it. But, you know, big box comedy, as you put it, is a different argument. Uh, It's also, I would argue to your point, it's not a big enough deal to talk
0: about. Yeah.
1: What is… To me,
0: tell me what
1: exactly you were trying to say and criticize. So, if she was Kate McKinnon, would this be a different story? Is it okay to say that if you're a huge, massive star? But
0: Kate McKinnon's not saying that. She didn't leave. I'm
1: just wondering if it, I'm wondering if we're also passing this through the filter of, uh, of, you know, who you are. If this were Sashir Zameda, who we have discussed on this podcast before, who you do have to care about, uh, and she discussed the reasons why she felt like, you know, her time on SNL was like this instead of like that, is it a different quote? Would we care more if it were a bolder name?
0: I would care more if to me it was 100% that Noel was making a statement and knocking it out of there and was having this ha 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 moment. Do I feel like Noel has had her ha 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 moment yet? She was good on Master of None, but am I looking at Noel am I looking at Noel and saying fuck she made Master of None? I mean, fuck yeah, in the same way that, oh my God, people are like, wow, yeah, Gabby Hoffman on Girls. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you know what Oh, wow, yeah, I can't picture it without Alana Glazer. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you. She's, yeah, that's what I mean. She's not… Sorry, and if that makes… And I feel very conflicted saying this because my… Definitely my go-to, my inclination is to always be like, what is this woman trying to say? I want to support her. But I just don't know if, number one, it's clear enough here, if it's pointed enough here, and whether or not it's warranted. Sometimes things just aren't for you. Maybe they're too big box. Maybe they're not specific enough. Ultimately, I agree
1: with you. I think this was not a big enough deal. Uh, to warrant this question, uh, and I should point out that it was asked at, not at Sundance, but at South by Southwest, is, this, is where this quote came from. But I think it's interesting that it made so many headlines, uh, because it's not making headlines because of her movie. It's making headlines because people want to run something about SNL, but as you accurately point out, there's not a lot to say. Right now? Like- well, there's not, a lot, there's not a lot in that quote.
0: There's also, if we want to really get specific and pinpoint it, this happened when Noelle Wells was on the show. She was on the show in 2013. And in 2013, that was also when Kate McKinnon began to bubble. Oh, yeah. This is, that was the rise of all the women. And you mentioned Cecily Strong. And AD Bryant. Bryant. Vanessa Bayer. So if the argument is it's not a place for women and they don't get the female comedy, (laughs) I just gave you four names. It's a, yeah. And these are the four names that, as you said, have become the heart and the beating soul of the show.
1: Well, that's a different conversation for another time, but there's certainly, they
0: certainly have had various moments in the sun, but we should move on. But we should move on. I just mentioned Gabby Hoffman in Girls. We promised last week that we would talk about girls. Yeah. The, I don't know, would you call it the twist? Yeah, it's a big big plot bomb. Right. Yeah. But specifically, the reason why you uh, have been thinking about this and I started thinking about this is because, uh, I don't know, three weeks ago there was an article again in Vulture… Vulture, doing great work. We love reading you. And this article in Vulture, uh, March 6th, was the pregnancy plot, how TV shows use motherhood to force characters to grow up. So, spoilers ahead. Hannah
1: has discovered that she's pregnant and is certainly leaning towards keeping it. I don't find this to be so untoward on girls, which has been a show about being resolutely childish for many years, for a long time. I mean, that was the criticism leveled at it in the beginning. That was sort of the the M.O. of the characters. Uh, And so I kind of understand from a story point of view why you know, why the writers thought it would be interesting to take Hannah to this place. The article is really interesting because uh, it kind of highlights a lot of really iconic, career-focused women who suddenly become more well-rounded, more grown-up once they have a baby. And listen to these names. Murphy Brown... Miranda on Sex and the City, Mindy Lahiri on The Mindy Project, Rachel on Friends, or as I will always say it, Rachel off Friends. Thank you, Ricky Gervais. It's really interesting when you start to look at it that way. Characters who did not come onto the scene as mothers, as parents, who were arguably in all of those cases quite fulfilled with their lives already. Uh, in the case of Miranda and the case of Murphy Brown, they were resolutely single and uh, comfortable with it. Uh, your mileage may vary where Sex in the City is concerned. Uh, it's really interesting. And it, once I sort of read it and sort of thought about that in that way, uh, it left a bit of a taste in my mouth. Uh, there's also uh, a line that uh, the, in a line in the show just before Hannah discovers that she's pregnant, uh, a woman talks about how the ideal state for a female writer is to be childless. Uh, and I also read a quote years ago. Please don't ask me where that says, and you'll love this: Every child a woman has is a book she does not write. Ugh. oh! Ask me whether that was said by a man or <sighs> a woman. I don't have to. Exactly. So, weeks later, this article is still staying with us.
0: It is still staying with us. Um, and I'm… Listen, I haven't caught up, so I've been spoiled, but I… To me, it, I I care less about the shock um, than I do about how they treat it. And… What stood out to me in this piece was that their concern is that this particular storyline, which is, as they say, a life-altering occasion, comes so late in the series so that they don't get to see how Hannah will manage I mean, I guess to me,
1: that's an interesting argument, but I guess to me, it's not the point. Uh, Maybe in all those other shows that we listed, the idea of becoming a parent uh, once the strip turns pink is an eventuality. This show is not that. The second episode of the show threw a party at an abortion. That never wound up happening, but... uh, There is every possibility that if Hannah decided or decides not to become a parent, uh, that her life would continue apace. So I'm less interested in, I suppose, you know, how would she change her life? Because I think we know. I think we know that she would, you know rely on her parents and get an enormous stipend and bit by bit figure it out and it would not be some revolutionary change,
0: but uh, incremental.
1: You're giving me a face, you don't buy it.
0: I don't buy it. And I I don't buy it because I agree with the premise of this article and I'm going to quote, you know, fiction is quite practiced at showing us the shock of a positive pregnancy test and the hysteria of dramatic birth later. But it's much less practiced at telling stories about what it would actually be like to write while also mothering. That's what I want to see. And maybe that's just me because so many writers I know do it while mothering. Sure. And they do it very well. And they do it in contrast to that stupid-ass quote that you just gave from the man who said how many books have been lost with how many children women have had. And so, to me, I agree with this point, that this happening at this point in the show, does that mean I'm not gonna get to see Hannah being a mother and yet managing to write a book? Three books. Five books. Here's the problem. Zadie Smith has written two books since becoming a mother. Sure she has, sure. Um,
1: And people do. Let's be real here. J.K. Rowling wrote many a book uh, with children. People write books with children. Maybe it's not cinematic. Is that the problem? That's the problem. Writing is already one of the biggest bullshits of television and film because everybody likes a character who's a writer, but watching somebody write is very boring. Watching them come up with ideas maybe is exciting. And, you know, watching them parent is, let's be honest, it's… it's for a minute, but it's, there's not a lot to say. One of the examples that they cite of somebody who is a mother, a writer, and a character that we see is Jane on Jane the Virgin, which is another show I deeply enjoy, but that show plays with tone and form all the time. We get to see how her writing can be exciting because they literally have the narrator narrate They We see the scenes get acted out, and, and... They do make a huge point, even on that show, of the fact that baby Mateo is left with half a dozen adoring caregivers at any given time. There's a rich amount of family around. So there's no struggle there. It's not, it's not necessarily exciting. And look, I'll just say it. As somebody who writes things and parents someone, it looks very boring It looks like getting up in the morning in sweats and drinking cold coffee and tapping things out for a little bit, and then getting up and
0: going on with your day. I I guess that's why. I mean, I understand, because I do understand what is considered cinematic and what you can shoot and what you can visualize versus actually to real people what is sexy. Like, when you say you do write and you do parent, fuck, Duanna. as we've talked about many times before, and I've said to other people and to you… That is fucking sexy to me. It's sexy as hell to me when I see a text from you at 2 o'clock in the morning because I know that you set your alarm to wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning because that is those three, four hours of, you know, from 2 to 6 is when you get to write, when your son is sleeping. And I, maybe it's very specific in terms of who this is interesting to. But at the same time, I just don't know that those visuals are what we get to see out there. You're
1: right. And so the challenge might be how to make them cinematic. Because I guarantee you, if that was happening on the show, you'd be like, I'm bored. If we were watching, uh, you know, people struggle with money, it's never sexy. No matter how poor people sure. are, it's
0: never fun to watch on screen. I get that. Screen. I get that and I agree. I work in TV. I understand what is considered boring and what people want to watch, but I'm just saying that when we talk about a diversity and a realism in storytelling and what storytelling can do in terms of reflecting social norms and social acceptance, my God, would it be sexy if somehow someone could be imaginative enough to be able to write what it looks like when a writer is a mother. Put your money where your mouth is. I'm giving you homework. It is not
1: to have a baby. Your homework is to come up with what you'd like that scene to be. Uh, You can write it if you want to or just tell me. You guys do it too. Send us your idea of what you'd like to see. The idea of a mother who's balancing work. And of course, not just writing. Any work that is meaningful and not necessarily has the ability to be done in an office, because I think we know how people are mothers and nurses, and the answer is, uh, you know, we've seen a little bit of how that might work. Uh, you don't tend to nurse with a baby on your hip. But send us your ideas. Uh, I will take this on as well. Let's see if we can come up with a way to make this work be shown in a way that is exciting and cinematic and that you would want to watch as well as want to see proven. Other thing that I have to point out, uh, not to aggrandize anybody, I'm not a single parent, lest anybody think that that's the case. I am a co-parent. That is much easier, first of all, and much different than the characters that we're talking about who actually almost to a fault are single parents. So there is some glamour to be examine on screen there, but I don't want anybody to have the illusion that I'm just casually doing all this by myself, because I
0: ain't. And finally, we come to our, I don't know, is it becoming a regular feature that we end on? Do we need to care about? Yeah. So this week's Do We Need to Care About? is my pitch, and that is Yara Shahidi. So this is what's funny about this segment, is that it's becoming the place where one
1: of us is trying to talk the other into having to care And you guys come along for the ride. And I have to say, uh, it really lights up the inbox.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, I understand that perhaps my affection for Yara Shahidi is enhanced because she's on basically my favorite show on television, and you hear me talk about it all the time, and that's blackish. Right. So, Yara Shahidi plays the oldest child of um, Dre and Bo, Anthony Anderson, and uh, Tracy Ellis-Ross. Her name is Zoe. Um, Yara Shahidi has become a fashion star. She shows up on the lifestyle section of Laney Gossip all the time. That rainbow dress is oh, that the Golden Globes? My God, I don't, I can't remember right now where it's from. But fashion star. Um, she is. Um, they are kind of, sort of trying to see if they can do a Denise Huxtable style spinoff for her um, from Blackish to when Zoe goes to college. So that's a big deal. Like there are a lot of shows with a
1: lot of people on them and they don't get spinoffs. Like remember when Modern Family was like up in everybody's nostrils all the time and you knew all of those kids whether you wanted
0: to or not? Yeah. They didn't get spinoffs. Nobody was talking about a Sarah Hyland spinoff.
1: In fact… Were they? No. (laughs) Um, In fact, I can't remember the last time there was a spinoff period. Uh, when they work, they work, but they're hard to do. Like the originals was a spinoff of Vampire. the Vampire Diaries. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, here I go again with the the '90s and oh, the there's WB. the Breaking
0: Bad spinoff. Yeah, Better, Better Call, Call Saul. Saul was a spinoff of
1: Breaking Bad, and Angel was a spinoff of Buffy. To take it really back
0: a bit, is the Good Life a spinoff of the Good Wife? It is, in
1: fact. It is, in fact, a spinoff of The Good Wife. I've not seen The Good Life yet. I'm saving it up to, to
0: mm-hmm. collect all my Diane But all characters don't get spun off as often, and certainly I don't feel like female characters do.
1: Well, and in uh, most of those cases that we just talked about, the series was over. You know, uh, in the case of Better yes, Call Saul… You're right. In the case of The Good Life, uh, you know, it's sort of, well, we're done here, yeah. uh, so let's kind of go off over into yeah. this, you know, we're done here and let's see another angle of this world. 100%. It was not concurrent. No. Uh, the the Denise Huxtable and A Different World… Were concurrent. It was concurrent and it was really… Uh, it was kind of groundbreaking in terms of let's see a different side of this world. Let's yeah. see, you know, a different side of this person's life outside of this living room. That's right. And… With the full understanding that she's still part of the family. And that's what the idea is for Zoe, right? That yeah. That she's still part of the family, that she's yeah. still going to appear on Blackish. Yeah. She's not leaving the show. Cut to those headlines in a few months, by the way. Please, people, write <laughs> proper headlines. Like, do your research and don't get caught in the clickbait.
0: However. However. The reason why I'm pitching this is because that actually came out a few weeks ago or a couple months ago that Zoe might be getting a spinoff. The reason why I'm pitching this is because it came out this week that Yara Shahidi has applied to college, she's of the age, and that one of her letters of recommendation came from Michelle Obama. And first of all… I mean, that's stacking the deck. Like, (laughs) first of all, who's not going to accept her? And okay, and period, the end. But the reason why this was so interesting to me and so exciting to me is because there has been talk, some talk of her deferring. For a year, because, maybe said spin off, because she's kind of taking, like, you know, strike while the iron's hot, is that the expression? Yeah. So, her work is uh, building up right now, her work, she's, it, there's buzz around her, so Does she go to school? Does she take a year off? And I don't feel like we've had one of these stories since Emma Watson, right? Emma Watson finished Harry Potter and then she went to Brown and had a thing at Oxford. And before Emma Watson, there were the Natalie Portmans and the Jodie Fosters of the world who very famously, when they're very, very famous, decided to, hey, I'm just going to put acting on hold and I'm going to go to school. I want to do the school thing. I think Jodie went to Yale. Sure. Right? And um, Portman went to
1: Harvard. Portman went to Harvard, absolutely. But, you know, Emma Watson and Working Backwards, those are people who said, yeah, I'm going to put it on hold. We talked earlier about being powerful enough that stuff will wait for you. Natalie Portman's movies will wait for her. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Emma Watson, God, anything that Emma Watson wanted would wait for her at that point. And if something passes you by, well, something else is going to come along that's going to be even better. The thing with Yara Shahidi is I don't know if she's there yet. I don't know if, you know, this is the, this is the fear of every young actress, right? If she goes away for a while, will
0: people bother to miss her? You will. I'll miss her. And as a part B to that, you don't know if she's there yet, but she's also a black actress. Yep. And we already know that there are limited… and we already know that there are limited opportunities. It's getting better, but let's not kid ourselves, it is not even close to being there. Right. So, we already know that there are limited opportunities for black actors, and since she is building, since it is snowballing, and she happens to be of a certain type, for lack of a better word, that doesn't get on the top of the list that they don't write for yet, that they don't consider at the top, you know, let me get Emma Stone, let me get whatever, is this smart? But she's closer than ever, right? Like, this is why
1: there's a debate. Because the the kind of argument on the one hand is always, you know, school is important. School is expanding your brain. I come down 93% on that side. The other argument on the other side when they ask somebody who turns 18 is… Oh, are you going to go to school? And they say, but you know what? School will be there, and this opportunity won't be, and so forth. And this is what you're talking about when you talk about her. Sure, she is a black actress and not somebody who is, yeah, she's not Emma Stone. She's not even, uh, you know, Miley Cyrus at 18. She's not even getting those roles. What she is, though, as we just talked about, is a familiar face, a fashion darling. People love a fashion darling. It's real good for sales. Uh, and she's kind of got the the world as her oyster. So it becomes a real balancing act. I know nothing about her parents or her management team, which is a plus. The less I know about your parents or management team, the the more I'm into who you are. Millie Bobby Brown.
0: But (laughs) it would be a hard decision to make if I were them. Yeah. And this is why… I wanted to talk to you about her. I feel like that is just at the intersection of all we've talked about in terms of opportunity and work and age. We've talked about young stars before. She's… she just turned 17. Like, let's be honest, and that's young to go to school anyway. So,
1: you know, deferring is certainly something that could be on the table.
0: It's definitely
1: an option. It can be done. Uh, Remember those great giant summer breaks… Mm -hmm. In university, like, they were long. Yeah, you were done by second week of April. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's everything to suggest that she could fit in a project, even two, between the second week of April and the third week of August or whenever it is you go back. There's no reason that her career has to stop for four years. And there's a good month at Christmas, too, depending on who you are. I don't know. I don't know what I would choose. I'll tell you what I wish. I wish there was some other project on deck. Her IMDb right now has some of the projects she's done. She is uh, the voice of something animated, I believe. I wish there was one more thing to hang on to, to have people sort of have an appetite for. And maybe that's coming and we just don't know about it yet. Uh, But I'd really like to see what's the next thing and the non-blackish thing. Not because I think the spinoff won't be great, but because if you're going to turn into something… You want people to associate you with you and not just, oh, one of the kids from Blackish.
0: I care about Yara Shahidi. I want everybody else to care about Yara Shahidi. I
1: want to care. Let's put it that way. Great.
0: I right. win. <laughs> um, that's it for us. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring about work. Thank you for writing to us about work. Yeah. My God, your work emails are. Amazing! Please keep sending them to us.
1: Please keep working. Please keep grinding away when you feel like you don't know what you're doing or why it's happening. It is all for the good.
0: Check us out on iTunes and Google Play and we'll be back next week. Work hard. See you later.